words like polarization and tribalism have become so applicable that they've almost become buzzwords these days. Everything seems to be divided into camps, it seems. And that dynamic has intensified from red states versus blue states to the clash between urban cultural elites versus rural populists to now, as today's conversation explores through stories and data and vivid firsthand experience from Dr. Fauci's outgoing boss to a divide between faith and science. That's even if, as you'll hear Pete Weiner make the case quite compellingly with his evangelical brothers and sisters in mind, even if that faith, quote unquote, can quite easily become more sociology than theology, more culture than biblical fidelity. It's just a fact that Americans are trusting less and less each year in the integrity of our institutions. And that erosion of trust capital has consequences, which aren't just partisan and ideological, they can be devastating. Listen to these blunt words from Dr. Francis Collins, the outgoing 12-year NIH director, and as you no doubt know, the first person to successfully sequence the human DNA instruction book, who joins us today after retiring from NIH in December to discuss these themes. People estimate now more than 100,000 lives have been unnecessarily lost because of vaccine hesitancy and resistance. And again, shortly thereafter, connecting a set of dots that he and BioLogo's president, Deb Harsma, each draw upon to make the case you're about to hear. The culture war is literally killing people now. As social creatures, our ongoing pull is to be in the right in-group, to assert our bona fides, that they're strong. And as Deb hints at, this tribalist sociology really is stronger than textual commitments. It's the deeper drive that shapes what we believe. Today, it's really not the Bible versus science, it's us versus them. And now to direct insights from three scholarly voices, Francis Collins, Deb Harsma, and Pete Weiner. We've briefly introduced Francis and Deb, and Pete is a regular on this podcast who contributes to The Atlantic and The New York Times. If this episode piques your interest, you're quite welcome to hear the second 45 minutes of Q&A dialogue linked in the show notes with a dozen journalists who joined this discussion in February 2022 and asked some brilliant questions. Thanks to BioLogos for co-sponsoring this conversation, and we've also linked to a brand new curriculum they've just finished developing designed to help a rising generation of high schoolers get ahead of some of these unresolved tensions. First up is Deb Harsma, a graduate of a small Christian college in Minnesota, Bethel University, who then went on to earn a PhD in astronomy at MIT before her own career as a scientist, and now since 2013 giving leadership at BioLogos. Here's Deb, followed by Presidential Medal of Freedom awardee and Templeton Prize winner, Francis Collins. Thank you so much, Josh. And I want to thank uh, Josh and everyone at the Faith Angle Forum. We are delighted to be co-sponsoring this event with you, for BioLogos to be working alongside EPPC and the great work that you're doing. Thanks to all of you for the journalists who are coming and those who are viewing us today. This is such a critical topic. We're here to talk about faith, science, and tribalism. 
And I wanted to say just a few words about faith and science and then how we ended up where we are now in this very tribalistic environment. So I am a scientist and a Christian. I am an astronomer. I have used telescopes around the world and in orbit to study galaxies, galaxy clusters, the curvature of space and the expansion of the universe. And I love studying these wonders. It's uh, very exciting. And for me, though, as a Christian, there's another layer to it in that the wonder I experienced studying God's creation also has this layer of worship because for me and my work, I see this as the glory of God being displayed in the natural world. So for me, there's not a conflict between faith and science. I embody them both every day. Even when I'm doing my science, I'm not setting aside my faith and being neutral somehow. I'm actually living this as an outgrowth of my faith. So for me, when I study something like the Big Bang, I see the Big Bang as a scientific model describing how God brought about all of the complexity of the galaxies that we see today from the hot early beginning of the universe. And historically, faith and science have not been in conflict. The Christian faith has been pro-science since the early days. Uh, Galileo, Kepler, Boyle, they not only had personal faith, they wrote very eloquently about how they saw their faith being lived out in their scientific work. Uh, Boyle even wrote how doing science promoted good Christian character. And of course, in the century since, you see Christian doctors and educators founding hospitals and schools and being very pro-science. So how did we end up here with today's polarization over science? Science used to be bipartisan. It was one of the few really bipartisan issues. But in today's world, it's become on either side of this divide, where the world has become so aggressively polarized that it seems like every issue has to land in a red camp or a blue camp. And when you view the world that way, somehow Christian faith gets assigned to red and science gets assigned to blue. And for scientists who are Christians, like myself and Francis Collins, this doesn't make any sense to us. We see this as going together. Now, I grew up as an evangelical, so I just wanted to share a few insights of where some of the roots of today's divides. It didn't come out of nowhere. And now I'm not a historian of science, but I can share a little bit how I've experienced it. So when I say evangelical, I'm thinking of the evangelical church in which I grew up, not today's meaning. The meaning of the word has changed so much to mean as a much more of a political meaning than a theological meaning. And you can tell that because of surveys that have been done that show that now when you survey those who self-identify as evangelical, 40% of them attend church once a year or less or not at all. 40%. Now, in my evangelical church growing up, being evangelical meant being in church three times a week. This is what you did. And it meant reading your Bible, memorizing the Bible, talking about the gospel. And we actually contrasted ourselves with fundamentalists. Remember fundamentalists? That was the more conservative group that was very conservative in their moral values and their theological values. And evangelical was this moderate coalition that Billy Graham really led in the middle of the last century. So that's my touchstone for evangelical. So also in the middle of the century, in 1960, you had the publication of a book called The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris. And that was the springboard for young earth creationism. A lot of evangelicals don't realize that this idea that the earth literally is 6,000 years old actually is not what the church has viewed for thousands of years. It's really quite a recent development. But in the last 60 years, it's been repeated and white evangelical and fundamentalist Christians have been told over and over that the Bible teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. Science says billions of years. Therefore, the science and the Bible are at odds. 
And in the church I grew up, we all believe the church that God created in six days because we believe the Bible. Now, it took my, you know, as an adult for me to read more deeply into what biblical scholars said about Genesis, to have a richer understanding of scripture, to see that Genesis was more teaching that God is the creator and things were created good. And it wasn't attempting to convey scientific information. You can read much more about that at biologos.org. But really, it was a science versus the Bible debate. Then things kept ramping up in the 90s and in the aughts. The rhetoric was ramping up. And you also had it coming from the other side. We had the new atheist movement, voices like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne saying really extreme things like science rules out religion. Scientists are, are really smart. They don't believe in God. Evolution shows that humans have no meaning or purpose. And when Christians hear these things, well, we say, of course, that's wrong. And so therefore, I disagree with the scientist who's saying this. And if science is saying that, I guess I don't agree with science. I can also say that the academy has not always been friendly to Christians. There are many scientists who are believers, and often I've experienced quite a friendly and welcoming environment. But I know a lot of people who haven't experienced that, and Christians are underrepresented in the sciences. So some of that self-selection out, and some is that the climate hasn't always been friendly for that. I'll also note that as the scientific community is very committed to wanting to improve in representation of, among people of color. And this would be a good moment to consider how welcoming they are to people of faith. The data shows that in the black church and the Hispanic church, they have higher rates of church attendance in those groups than in among white evangelicals. So anyway, there's things going on on both sides. And of course we have two sides of a, a vibe. They amp each other up and it just gets worse and worse. Accepting or rejecting evolution came to imply a host of views on theology and the Bible, and then a host of political views. And today, it's really not the Bible versus science, it's us versus them. That's suddenly where we end up. I was recently hearing from a, a fellow Christian how he told his mother that he accepted the Big Bang. And his mother was upset. He asked why. And she said, well, the Big Bang, that's what scientists say. Full stop. That's why she couldn't accept it, because a scientist had said it. There wasn't a biblical argument there. There isn't a scientific argument there. It was because it's them. It's on the other side. And for scientists who are Christians, it just grieves my heart to have it be in this state. And it is causing problems. It's not a good state to be in. From well before the pandemic, we've seen young people leaving the faith over science. In 2018, the Barna Group reported that 49% of church-going teenagers feel that the church rejects much of what science has to say about the world. So half of our church-going teenagers feel like the church has rejected science. And then Barna, in another study, asked young people, why do you doubt? What is causing you to question or leave your faith? And science was up there as one of the top four reasons, right up there with hypocrisy of religious people. So it's a huge issue from a faith perspective. It's a huge issue from a big cultural perspective. In the last two years, faith and science have become more weaponized than ever, become weapons in the culture war. And now when we're talking about issues of COVID and when we're talking about issues of climate change, we're now talking about health and safety and natural disasters and agriculture. All of a sudden, the consequences aren't just it's not just a shouting match, it's people's physical health, physical safety. People are dying from the culture wars. So these are critical issues. I'm glad we'll be talking about them today. At Biologos and at the EPPC, we believe this does not have to be the case. Back to the roots of Christianity, to the roots of science, these things do not have to be in conflict. 
Both of our organizations are committed to thoughtful, nuanced, compelling conversations and believe that good conversations are possible. At Biologos, we believe Christ-centered faith and rigorous science can work hand in hand instead of being at loggerheads. At Biologos, we're giving voice to scientists who are believers, and we are giving voice to pastors and theologians who celebrate what science has discovered in God's creation. We're also equipping teachers and parents to guide the next generation to do better, to be informed and faithful leaders in a divided world. If you ask me where my hope is today, a lot of it is that the next generation can do better than we're doing now. So I look forward to a great conversation today. Now, let me introduce someone who exemplifies much of what I've been saying. Dr. Francis Collins is a great friend, and he is the founder and senior fellow of Biologos. Francis Collins is a world leader in biomedical research, including, as we already heard, directing the Human Genome Project. He just stepped down after 12 years of directing the National Institutes of Health, serving under three successive presidents. Francis has been pivotal in the fight against COVID-19, forming that coalition of the pharma companies, research, government, to all come together to bring us the safe vaccines that we have today. Dr. Collins is also a person of deep Christian faith. He told his story of coming to faith in the best-selling book, The Language of God, and his faith is on display. There's a lot of people who give lip service to faith or their faith is just a private matter, but you can see in his public life how he has lived out a life of service and humility and joy and excellence, all things that arise out of his faith. So welcome, Francis Collins. Uh, thanks, Deb, for a kind introduction and for your wonderful remarks that really set the stage for what we hope we can be talking about here with members of the press. I just want to say a sincere thank you to EPPC and particularly to the Faith Angle Forum for making this possible. I have all kinds of warm experiences with Faith Angle over the years. Back in the day when Mike Cromarty, my dear friend, was running this and a couple of memories of gatherings in Florida where really interesting conversations would break out all over the place. And I hope that will be exactly what happens here this morning. So thank you, Josh Good, for being our uh, moderator here. And thank you to my friend Pete Weiner for engaging with Deb and me here shortly as we try to discuss some of these very important issues. And they're very vexing issues as well, as you've already heard. I won't go through my own life story in any detail, but just to sort of put in context where I'm coming from, I should maybe say that my beginnings in terms of faith interests are different than Deb's. I was not raised in an evangelical church. I wasn't really raised in any church tradition at all. And over the course of high school and college and then graduate school, migrated into agnosticism and ultimately atheism. But then in medical school, encountering the realities of life and death and realizing I really didn't have any answers to those questions about why are we all here and is there a God and does God care about me? I had some work to do to try to sort that out. I assumed that work would further strengthen my atheism as a rigorous scientist who was at that point not very interested in things that couldn't be demonstrated in the laboratory. But I discovered that was a way too limiting approach to answering these really important eternal questions about God. And to my surprise, over the course of a couple of years of back and forth and up and down and conversations with lots of people and lots of exposure to really deep thinkers like C.S. Lewis, to my surprise, I became a Christian at age 27. 
I was already at that point uh, deeply interested in genetics and the way in which medicine and genetics could work together to perhaps be transformative in discovering the causes and the abilities to treat disease. And so it was predicted that becoming a Christian at that point was not going to be compatible with my professional aspirations. And there would be some sort of horrible conflict because that's what everybody assumed. And frankly, a lot of people still do. And guess what? It didn't happen. I have never in my experience as somebody who is a person who really believes in the Christ-centered faith uh, we call Christianity and who reads the Bible regularly and sees it as a source of truth and guidance about the nature of humanity and the nature of God, I've never seen a conflict between that and what I know as a scientist and have had the privilege of being able to be engaged in including the sequencing of the human genome, and then for 12 years leading the National Institutes of Health efforts. I think when we see conflicts of that sort, we need to basically step back and say, okay, what have we done here in terms of an interpretation that needs rethinking? I'm very fond of the Francis Bacon way in which we talk about faith and science as gifts from God, both of them. Bacon talks about the two books that we've been given, the book of God's words, the Bible, and the book of God's works, which is nature. And if they're both God's books, uh, it would be a problem for us as the readers if we thought there was a conflict. So let's look carefully and see how we might have misunderstood. Obviously, as Deb has said, a lot of that has focused on two areas, the age of the universe and the whole issue about how humans are related to other species. And much of the conflict that we have now seen, particularly in the United States, between evangelicals and fundamentalists and science, are not necessarily those that were seen as that big of an issue in previous centuries. And it is unfortunate that we've arrived at this kind of camp situation between the faith and science communities in an unnecessary way. Biologos.org is the place you can go and read a lot more about all of those things. For me as a scientist and a believer, I don't put these in separate parts of my brain or deal with them in separate parts of the day. These are all integrated, complementary. They self-reinforce in interesting ways. Science then becomes not just a detective story, but it is that and a And it's a lot of fun in that way alone. It's also an opportunity to glimpse God's creation. And as Deb used the word a minute ago, uh, science is worship as well. For her, maybe it's studying those far-flung galaxies. For me, it's the mysteries of how a cell does all the things it's doing or how the brain works. But that is awesome. And it also is an opportunity to get a glimpse of God's mind and to feel this sense of worship. And I I'm fond of saying you can meet God in the laboratory, not just in the cathedral, if you're thinking about what it is you're doing. I was a little private at first about my belief. I guess, as Deb has said, the academic community is not always embracing to people of faith. But as I got further along and discovered how many young people were really interested in talking about this, how science and faith might go together, I became more open myself in that kind of conversation and ultimately wrote this book called The Language of God, which is now 15 years old and which, to my surprise, was of great interest, it seems, and continues to be to a lot of people trying to sort out how one can, in fact, 
bring together rigorous science and Christ-centered faith. And immediately following that, barraged by lots of questions from people who wanted to go deeper than I had been able to do in that book, it was clear we needed some kind of a meeting place for these kinds of conversations to happen in a gracious, respectful, civil way with no mudslinging allowed. And that was the basis for the founding of BioLogos back in 2009. And it has been remarkable to see how that has over the course of these years uh, really expanded into a remarkable place for people to have the kinds of conversations that maybe just weren't happening before. I can't say enough about how wonderful it has been to have Dr. Del Harzma step in as president of that organization in 2013. I had to step away because as a presidentially appointed director of the National Institutes of Health, I was not allowed to have any formal role with any other organization. So I became a cheerleader from the sidelines uh, for this enterprise until I stepped down from an IH directorship just about a month ago. And now I'm happy to say I have this new role as senior fellow, although my main focus right now is running my research lab in the intramural program at NIH. So I'm still a federal employee, which means I should tell you I'm speaking to you today as a private citizen and not as a representative of the U.S. government, in case there was any doubt about that. It is an awesome time in science right now. This is like the golden era for life science the things that are possible, the technologies that have come along to make it even imaginable. We can figure out how the brain works, all 86 billion neurons. Uh, we have ways that we're approaching cancer with things like immunotherapy, big meeting today at the White House about this. Genomics has just opened up all kinds of opportunities in precision medicine. Gene therapy is now starting not just to hypothetically do some good, but to cure people with sickle cell disease and other genetic conditions. It has been amazing to see that exponential trajectory in terms of scientific capabilities that NIH has a chance to nurture and encourage. And of course, we have to talk about COVID because that has so dominated everything in the last two years in our private lives and certainly in the scientific community as well. And I must say, the scientific community responded to this COVID challenge in dramatic ways dropping any kind of concern about the usual boundaries between who is going to get credit for what, pulling together academia, government, industry, the regulatory agencies, sitting around the same table designing the most rigorous approach to developing vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostic testing. And in just 11 months, the result of that coming forward with vaccines that were so compelling in phase three trials, and that FDA granted that emergency use authorization, and now two of those, uh, one of them just in the last day, uh, have the, the full approval of vaccines that are safe and dramatically effective. I can't tell you how amazing that experience was, because we didn't have any right to expect it was going to work. Most of you know vaccine science is not exactly a plug and play. Most vaccines have taken us four or five years to come to fruition. Most have failed before they ever got there. And to try to do this in the presence of a global pandemic that was taking hundreds of thousands of lives, you felt this incredible sense of urgency. And I, as a person of faith, was not only doing everything I could to try to steer the scientific ship. Yes, I will admit, I was praying about this as well. And when the data appeared one evening in the fall of 2020 from that phase three trial, 
Nobody really knew until they unblinded it what it was going to look like. And I had this concern there might be a safety problem and a concern that the efficacy might not be much better uh, than 40 or 50 percent, even though the phase one and two trials had looked sort of encouraging. And when the data was unveiled, 95 percent efficacy and no safety concerns in that group of 30,000 people, I was astounded. I was overjoyed. It was an answer to prayer, and I kind of lost it. I cried that night about as hard as I have cried in a long time. It was just such a sense of gratitude and relief. And I thought at that point, okay, we are going to win this. We are going to vanquish this worst pandemic virus in more than a century. We now have the tools to do this. And of course, everything got pulled together as fast as we could to try to get the manufacturing scaled up and shots into arms. What happened? Well, we did save hundreds of thousands of lives. Let's be clear about that. But it didn't turn into this full victory that we had expected. Part of that, of course, was the variants, the Delta, and now more recently, Omicron. And those, in a certain way, had to be expected and planned for, although I don't think we knew that they would be quite as challenging as they were. But a big part of it was that we somehow did not convince a lot of people that they wanted to take advantage of this life-saving medical development. People estimate now more than 100,000 lives have been unnecessarily lost because of vaccine hesitancy and resistance. You can read stories about those. The press has done a good job of telling some of those heartbreaking stories of people who for one reason or another, decided these vaccines were not for them, mostly based upon information that was spread to them through social media, through cable news, through political messages, and oftentimes through words they were hearing from people in their churches. Because we had separated, as Deb said, into this red-blue situation, and the evangelicals, unfortunately, were caught up in this in a particularly difficult way. What demographic group is the most resistant to vaccines? It's white evangelicals, 30 to 40 percent, just not interested and very dug in on that. And what is that about? Well, some of it is this carryover of the tension between science and faith. Deb told a story about somebody said, well, if the Big Bang is science, then it must not be something that we believers should accept. Well, if vaccines are said to be safe and effective, that's science. So that must be something we should accept. There were lots of other messages folded in there. It's particularly troubling uh, to see political voices basically contaminating, in many instances, the truth of the situation. And many churches also bringing those on board, even though they were purely political and had virtually nothing to do with the faith traditions that those churches stood for. Truth was harder and harder to find. And yet people of faith, you would think, would have been out in front demanding that we make those decisions. After all, Jesus, speaking himself to skeptics, said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John chapter 8. The evangelical church has not been set free. They've been, in other ways, enmeshed in a series of misinformation, disinformation, and just lies about the nature of what we know and what we don't know. Now, let me be clear. There have been mistakes made in the communication process about the truth. I've made some myself. But what has been so hard to deal with is the continual barrage of misinformation and oftentimes spoken very loudly and repetitively to the point where people don't know what to believe. 
we're in a terribly difficult place here in terms of the tribalism that has affected everything. And as Deb said, this is a culture war and not just one where people can say, well, that's too bad. The culture war is literally killing people now. Biologos, therefore, is needed more than ever, a place for gracious dialogue, a place where Christ-centered faith and rigorous science can be seen as partners, as I see, where truth matters. But truth doesn't seem to be winning out automatically. On top of truth, you need trust. We need everything we can do to rebuild that trust and to make it possible for people to begin to recognize what sources they can lean on for accurate information and which they ought to be skeptical about. That's gotten all muddled up. I worry about the next generation. I get messages, and Deb does, and Biologos gets a lot of these from young people who are trying to figure out if the church tells me something that they say is required as part of the way in which we are believers, and science says something else, do I have to choose between these two things? That's a terrible dilemma to put on the shoulders of a young person who may be the next great scientist that we need and also somebody whose faith is going to bring a perspective to everything they do, just as it does for me and Deb today. I'm glad, therefore, that maybe at the end of today's conversation, we'll hear briefly from Catherine Applegate about a new program that BioLogos is just launching this week called Integrate which is going to provide the kind of curriculum for high schools, be they homeschoolers or Christian high schools, to bring to their attention how Christian faith and science can, in fact, be entirely compatible and integratable. And we think that might be a big contribution to trying to change what has been such a polarized situation and such a difficult situation for young people. So we look forward to seeing the consequences of that. Finally, I just want to say, Now that I'm no longer an IH director, I aim to do everything I can to try to contribute in a positive way to the dialogue that is clearly needing to happen. And nothing that I have said here, I hope, is coming across as in some way denigrating the people who have been hit so hard with the consequences of this breakdown in access to truth. I know there's so many people in those pews on Sunday morning who must be feeling something isn't right here but aren't quite sure where to turn to go and get answers. And I am empathetic. My heart goes out to those people as they see this situation, which must be causing them a lot of angst and grief. I think I am less sympathetic with are those who continue to spread the misinformation. Oftentimes, even knowing that, that is not something that I think should just go by without some kind of commentary. So somehow in our culture, even as we greatly value the First Amendment, and I do too, we have to figure out how to do a more credible job of getting the fact-based information higher on the list uh, so that the conspiracies and the lies that are so readily spread around have less of a chance of getting purchase on people's decision-making. So I will stop with that and turn this back uh, to Pete and Josh. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Francis and Deb, for those comments. It's great to be with you. I know both of you, obviously by reputation, but personally, especially you, Francis, and and you've been a great friend. And both of you have walked the walk as well as talked the talk. So I appreciate that very much. My role is is fairly limited here. I'm going to 
make a very quick comment and then ask a couple of questions of, of you. And then we'll go to, to the questions that the journalists that are on the call have. The comment is a brief one. And it's interesting. It's just an observation, which is, I think that when, when I consider about the situation that we're facing and even this conversation itself, I view it less as a conflict between faith and science as I do a conflict between science and sociology or science and culture or science and partisanship of which faith has been subordinated to those other things. And so sometimes I sense that the public expression of it is faith versus science. But what I've discovered, what, what I've observed in my life as a person of the Christian faith is that faith itself is subordinated to other things much more than I would have thought when I began my own journey. And so sometimes I wonder if, if it's almost a shadow debate that faith is a proxy for these other things. The degree to which sociology and culture and partisanship are the core identity to people of faith. And then people go through and proof texts the Bible to affirm or ratify what they already believe is going on. So I'm not exactly sure what to do about it. It's just an observation, but but maybe one that's worth worth keeping in, in mind. Francis, maybe I'll I'll just start with you because I want to dive in a little bit deeper with, with what you talked about in terms of the pandemic. And if you can reflect a little bit personally on what this was for you. I mean, I know you were working 100-hour weeks for this vaccination. I know what an extraordinarily emotional moment that was when when you got the results, which were much higher than you and, and Tony Fauci had hoped. And to have really been in, an instrument in what qualifies as a medical miracle or very nearly as a medical miracle and then to have run into what you witnessed, particularly in a subculture that you yourself were familiar with, was meaningful to you, had helped shape your life, evangelical subculture. Did you expect the resistance that you, that you encountered? What did you discover? What do you know now that you didn't know then? And what do you do with that as you think about ways to get out of this cul-de-sac? I didn't expect it would have anywhere near the degree of widespread resistance that occurred. Obviously, before COVID came along, there was this gathering movement of anti-vaccine sentiment, uh, much of it really coming more from the left, uh, which was, again, based upon suspicion of science and was getting some disturbing headway in terms of resistance against childhood vaccines because of a claim about connection to autism, which has been roundly debunked and was based upon an initial paper that turned out to be fraudulent. I guess I wasn't too surprised when people asked hypothetically, uh, would you take a COVID vaccine back in the fall of 2020 before we had one? And there seemed to be some like, well, I don't know about that. I just assumed that once there was real evidence, and the data was made very public, anybody who wanted to see it could do so, that that would knock down the resistance. And you know, by the spring of 2021, it sort of looked like, okay, we're making real headway here. Four million people a day were getting vaccinated at one point. And then we kind of hit the wall. And I was deeply troubled about that. But then I still thought to myself, people are gonna see what happens. They're gonna see the vaccinated people are actually doing a lot better. And by the summer of 2021, when we saw that 95% of the people who were dying of COVID-19 were the unvaccinated. 
that seemed like, okay, if there was any unwillingness to see the evidence here, that will take care of it. And it didn't. And then I knew we are in a much deeper hole than I thought. And I wished that a year earlier, we kind of realized that and maybe even done some intense research to try to understand what's the basis for that kind of belief system that is ready to reject evidence about life and death that seems so compelling and what kind of interventions might have helped. And we're, of course, trying to figure that out now, but we haven't made much headway. Most of those people who said, I'm not going to get injected, they still haven't. And yet we continue to see, even now, more than 2,000 people died yesterday, most of them unvaccinated. So how can this, in the most technologically advanced country in the world, have happened? And Pete, you and I have talked about this. I had not had full appreciation, really, of exactly how people make decisions. I was under the impression that we were rational actors, because I like to think of myself as one. And I now know better from reading books like The Righteous Mind from Jonathan Haidt and others that have also pointed out just exactly how much we can be dug into cognitive biases by pre-existing belief systems that we don't want to see shaken. And it's clear, particularly for evangelicals, that part of that, that belief system includes a strong resistance to science. And to just simply say, well, look at the data is not going to be sufficient. So all the more recent, I think, I thought BioLogos was necessary when we started in 2009. Now I think it's like critical and it needs to be as widely and as quickly spread as possible to pastors, to people in the pews, to young people, to all of those who are trying to sort this out, because we are in a much worse place than I thought we were. That's really helpful. Thanks. I'll, I'll ask one question of, of Deb and then, and then we'll go to questions from the journalists. And I, I want to pick up on what Francis said, Devin, maybe you can dilate a little bit on, on this. And let me preface it by saying there's a lovely verse in the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. But Hume said that reason is the slave to passion. I think of Isaiah as an aspiration and Hume as a reality, I guess, right now. And so my question to you is, it strikes me in some respects that this must be a, a particularly difficult moment for someone who has a science-oriented mind. Because you're trained to believe that reason and facts and evidence within a certain kind of dialogue and context, truth will prevail in a sort of dialectic that goes on. And we're clearly not, as Francis was saying, and as experienced personal way. And, and I have too, and I'm guessing most people have, where you sometimes you feel like when you're having a conversation with somebody, it's like shooting BBs against a brick wall. It just doesn't, doesn't penetrate. So I wonder you as a scientist and also a head of BioLogos and a person who cares about these issues, what does that reality mean for you if you say, you know, reason and science and data are much more limited to persuade people than maybe we thought? It's very true. I've experienced it for years, actually, long before the pandemic when I would go and talk to people about the age of the earth or about evolution. And I think for many of us who are scientists, the first thing you want to say, you're talking to a church is to say, look, here's all this cool scientific evidence. And then realizing that doesn't do anything for this audience. Like they have no reason to trust me or anything I have to say. So it really comes down to trust, which Francis already mentioned. And so a lot of 
what we've learned at BioLogos is before presenting the rational arguments and the evidence, you first have to earn the trust. There first has to be this sort of change of heart. And that comes through relationships. It comes through trusted figures. So we do a lot of events and content where we have a person of faith who's not a scientist, but they're the one saying, hey, I think this is trustworthy. And then people are like, oh, okay, I'll listen. I mean, I've, I've literally talked to people who said, oh yeah, I signed your website that uh, Billy Graham accepts evolution, Tim Keller endorsed you. So yeah, I'm on board. And I'm like, wow. Okay. So sometimes it's as easy as that for people. I think it comes really well through local pastors. If they can create a culture where there are some issues we can disagree on that are not essential to the Christian faith. That's another thing. If you can get some issues sort of demoted down. So not everything is a litmus test for being the perfect Christian. And then if you can create a culture in a church where you can disagree about some things, that goes a long way. But that is a very hard culture to create. I've seen pastors do it, but it takes years and it takes a lot of church leaders being on board with it. So trust relationships. At Biologos, we are hoping to get the word out to all of our network, which includes a lot of people who agree with our views or they've come to agree with our views, but they're tied into all sorts of Christian families, churches, organizations, and can help convey it there to people they know personally. As noted earlier, if you're interested in hearing the second half of this conversation, you can find the link in the show notes. Thanks again to Francis, Pete, and Deb for the rich insights and front row seat candor. Faith Angle exists to help journalists draw out connections between religion and the leading disciplines in our public life, certainly including science and medicine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>